There's no way to do anything big and bold without expecting some friction. And the friction just has to create light, not fire. And I guess what I'm searching for is a way to create the light. And I'm not saying it's easy, but it's it's essential if we're gonna have progress. It's just getting harder and harder. You know, there, there's really more divisiveness today in this country and in this city than I've ever seen. And I'm just hoping that in the old pendulum where it swings, you know, maybe when, when gridlock occurs and nothing's happening and the city is falling apart and people still wanna be here and they love our city, that something will give, cause something has to give. That's Marianne Gilmartin, the founder and CEO of Mag Partners, a development firm in New York with three multifamily projects and a commercial building in Manhattan, as well as a big master plan in development now underway in Baltimore. The firm is just over two years old, but Marianne has been a fixture on the New York City real estate scene for decades. She was the president and CEO of Forest City Ratner, which is now owned by Brookfield, but she oversaw projects like Barclays Center and the New York Times building. In 2018, she left to create LNL Mag, a firm with David Levinson and Robert Lapidus. And then she went entirely out on her own venture in late 2019 with Mag Partners. I'm Miriam Hall, and on this episode of BizNow Reports, the last before we break for the summer, we're speaking to Marianne about running her new firm, taking on an ambitious project in Baltimore, her first outside of the city, and her concerns about political dysfunction in New York and how deeply divided the city and the country has become. She's speaking here first, though, about starting the company. I started the, the company with L&L Mag mm-hmm. and then had an ability to uh, buy the company uh, fully and buy my partners out, which happened during the pandemic. And so there was a period of time where um, quietly thought, is this really the right thing to do? And of course, with a, an able-bodied team that's very successful and have um, lots of options, I wanted to make sure that I could keep us all together. And so I'm pretty good on the pivot. And um, I would say part of my thinking was, there's so much uncertainty that um, being 100% in control of the company allowed me to protect the talent and the brand. So that decision was was clear and relatively straightforward for me. The question of how we were going to move forward was not so clear. And so I elected to take a, a position at McCalley where I was the chair of the board and I became the temporary CEO. And I call that my pandemic plan. Uh, I did it through Mag Partners, so it wasn't as if I was individually being hired to run the company. I agreed to run the company under the Mag Partners brand, although I was dedicating myself to it um, pretty intensely. And that allowed me to, to sort of navigate through this period of uncertainty with an ability to fund payroll and keep um, keep the the company and the lights on and all of that. And it was really just because uh, things were so unclear. As, as you as we all know, it got so dark, and the future of real estate as we knew it was was so uncertain. So the pandemic plan played out in a way that was um, just as I had hoped, which is it took just six months to really understand that things would settle back in and that we would um, move forward in a way where we could be opportunistic. The last thing I'll say is when you start a company at a time like that, we didn't have um, legacy projects and hangover issues around empty buildings, um, counterparties that were not performing. We were standing up the company and we were hunting for deals. And we were so nimble and so able to take advantage and be opportunistic that um, some of the things that seemed like they were liabilities became great um, 
benefits uh, during a pandemic. So you stepped into the role at Mac Cali as interim CEO until March 2021. So that was part of the plan to protect Mag in a way. Exactly. It was a de-risking and a shoring up of my own company's working capital through the needs that uh, Mag Cali had and their willingness to work with me on making sure they knew that I was not individually interested in becoming a public company CEO for the long term. And being able to state that and that intention and just being very direct about it, you know, there's there's value in that, right? So I, w- I was very clear I will do this, but this is not my long-term gig. And my heart and my first love is Mag Partners. Do you think that would have raised any eyebrows? So she's just started something, she's going to this other company, what's happening here? Well, the world was in turmoil, and I can say that um, I think people maybe do, had bigger things. On yeah, that. exactly. So while we take ourselves very seriously, it's always important to take a step back and say, like, how important is this to the balance of the universe? And it turns out people were just everybody was interested in survival and how they were going to move forward. And I was very clear that my team, uh, Mag Partners team, was still. Um, working and moving forward with our projects in New York. And I did bring a couple of folks over to help me at Mac Cali, but um, there were 24 hours in a day. I, I don't think I slept a lot. I probably worked harder than I ever worked, um, and I work pretty hard. But um, we are tough, and, and the team is very nimble. And what I like about it is uh, that muscle memory of building really complicated projects, You know what we went through building Barclays, Atlantic Yards, um, our work in Times Square, in many ways, we're hardwired to deal with headwinds. And when we get tailwinds, we almost don't know how to deal with it if it's easy. (laughs) Let's talk about some of the projects that you have on right now. So you've just announced this month um, that you are joining Sagamore Ventures and with their plan to build what they're calling like a mini city, um, which is basically in South Baltimore's Port Covington region. Now, Mag Partners and McFarlane Partners is coming on to take on the next phase of that redevelopment and run all the placemaking and the leasing of five buildings that are there now. You've never done anything in Baltimore before. In fact, I don't think you've done anything outside of New York, if I'm correct in that. So what drew you to that project? So let me begin by saying the New York metro area, including New Jersey's, really been my front yard, my backyard, and my side yard. So, you know, stepping outside of the metro area was um, a deliberate decision. Uh, we were opportunistic. We weren't clear that it was going to be Baltimore, but we felt like um, doing business in New York is not easy. Um, the company has a skill set that's in great demand. We started to get a lot of inbounds from uh, second tier cities um, that were looking for people who knew how to create place. And if you said, how do you self-identify, I would say to you first as a placemaker. The word developer comes with lots of connotations. I'm really proud of the fact that we create places. I don't really want to build single buildings, infill buildings in, in sort of forgettable places in forgettable ways. And so being a placemaker and creating places is the quest that Mag Partners set out to, uh, to accomplish when we formed the company, to build beauty to, to demonstrate that beauty can deliver great value and to deliver that value not just for the partners and the investors, but for the communities in which we build. That sounds so simple, but it's not the way it works. And so doing that in New York and understanding the importance of the people in the communities and the importance of beauty and high performance is something you can take on the road. And And it is not untrue that if you do it in New York, you probably have some real valuable lessons and can do it elsewhere. So it doesn't mean that the business isn't local. Because it is. But we were invited into Baltimore by Kevin Plank. We spent about a year and a half studying this opportunity. It's rare that um, a placemaker is um, able to take 250 acres with um, a fully entitled tract of land, 14 million square feet, 
tax increment financing, a very strong public-private partnership, Goldman Sachs, Kevin Plank as the sponsors of the project, these are very critical ingredients to making change, positive change. And so the first time I met Kevin Plank, I realized that he was geared up and able to be the Dan Gilbert of Baltimore. This is a man who deliberately grew his business in Baltimore when he could have taken it anywhere. So I was really drawn to the idea that his commitment runs really deep in in Baltimore. And we are a company that believes in cities. We are a country of cities. There are more people living in cities today than ever in the history of the world. And by 2050, 89% of the U.S. population will live in cities. Our work is, is, is working in cities. And so when you look at Baltimore, Baltimore is a city that deserves a future. So as we went deep into the project, we realized, wow, this is game-changing. This is a moment in time where a city like Baltimore deserves attention. The fundamentals are compelling. It is a highly educated workforce of about 245,000 people, and 40% of the working population is college-educated. 61-plus percent of the population are people of color. This is no better example of an American city that deserves greatness and deserves to benefit from a growing economy, an emerging corporate sector that now understands that to do well, you need to do good. It's a complicated city, though. I mean, what is your plan to change the narrative and work with the community to kind of build trust? So that's a great question. Um, We all tell stories, and I think the story of Baltimore is a complex story. Um, I think that it suffers from many of the same issues that cities across the country suffer from. And in many ways, it gets a bit of a bad rap because um, without fail, people will bring up the wire when you mention Baltimore instead of hairspray. (laughs) And I, I think now having spent a little bit of time in Baltimore and I have a lot to learn It is Charm City. There's a lot about that city that I think has uh, the makings of greatness. It has a grit that reminds me of Brooklyn. It has a population that wants to be together in community, and um, it's a population that loves food and culture. And it also is a population that's divided. In many ways, the physical division that 95 imposed upon Baltimore with people on one side versus the folks on the other is much of what Biden talks about when he says, what is infrastructure, right? So if not now, then when will there be a recognition that a city like Baltimore deserves some attention to fix the the, the wrongs of the past and to give it an opportunity to invent itself in a post-industrial way where it hasn't been able to do that? So yes, it's challenging. I think Historically, Victor McFarlane and MAG partners go places where people wouldn't want to go. Now, remember, my career started in the borough of Brooklyn, and that is today one story, but let's go to the story that existed in the late 80s when Mayor Koch would send companies over the Brooklyn Bridge and say, uh, I'd love you to stay in New York. I'm willing to make it worth your while. You need to go look at this new central business district that I'm seeding in Brooklyn. And these companies, and I was on the other side of the bridge waiting for them, would take one look in downtown Brooklyn, and they would promptly jump back into their limousines, head back over the Brooklyn Bridge, and we'd never see them again. So in many ways, the story of Brooklyn, which is a story that many can't even describe like how it happened, right? The definition of success was getting the hell out of Brooklyn. And now people move to the Upper East Side to save money so they can afford to live in Brooklyn. That, that renaissance 
tells me that uh, the world of placemaking is full of possibilities if the fundamentals are good. The government in Baltimore is um, is set for this project, is supportive of this project. The community in Baltimore, this is a community that doesn't um, doesn't question the need for the project. And you know, in New York, I've been in communities where they just simply don't want the change. And it doesn't matter whether you think you're doing good for the community, they just simply don't want change. In this particular instance, this is a community of people that question whether it's going to be fulfilled. And I love that because th- these are people that are all signed on to, to positive change and the questions around, will it happen? Will it actually be what people say it could be and, and, and should be? And, and I like that proposition because there's a mandate here. There's a mandate here to build and fulfill all of the plan for Port Covington in a way that should not only lift up the people of Baltimore, but could represent a great example of the revival of an American city. McFarlane Partners is run by uh, Victor McFarlane, who's an African-American man. Um, Mag Partners is obviously a a woman-owned business. Do you think that's come into play? And are you going to be using that to kind of work with the community and say, look who's building it? It's not a bunch of white guys. (laughs) Um, It's a different kind of story here maybe. Well, thank you for saying that because I think we need to – keep saying that and keep reminding people that we're in a community where we need to look like the community we're building in. And uh, in the same old, same old world of real estate, and um, particularly in cities, it's it's usually, it's the usual suspects. And I think it's, it's nothing short of remarkable that you have um, a minority developer, a female developer that on substance are capable of doing this. And there probably are a handful of, of developers that are really up for and hardwired to do the, the work of Port Covington. And we've come together now, two of us, maybe two of the five, and have signed on to this. But this should be a model for not just how development gets done in cities, but who actually executes on that vision. So I'm really proud of it. And and obviously, it's all going to be in the doing of it. And, and success is, is, is by building it and going vertical. So it's early. But um, you had mentioned that we're responsible for the future phases. We also are responsible for the 1.1 million square feet that are under construction today. And why is that? Because that's proof of concept. That that. 1.1 million square feet needs to be leased, branded, and open for business. And the placemaking has already begun because that is an incredible foundational basis upon which we will build uh, for success in the future. So we are not only in the driver's seat, but we are actively leasing the buildings that are under construction. And if you say, how could 1.1 million square feet be um, opening soon with no tenants? Half of it is residential. The residential market in, in Baltimore is quite strong. There's, again, a young population. A lot of these folks are priced out of more expensive areas in the D.C. in the DC communities. And so we're building high-quality homes for people, and I'm super confident that residential will perform or outperform expectations. The other half, the 500,000 square feet, is commercial. I don't have to tell you that during a pandemic, the commercial markets have been in turmoil. But we've also seen a flight to quality. And when you look at the inner harbor of Baltimore, you recognize that a lot of the buildings are tired. A lot of the buildings are not healthy. A lot of the buildings lack the amenities, the outdoor space, the controlled environment. And there's congestion in the inner harbor. So Port Covington represents a contained, controlled environment. 
easy access. Um, the highways are there. You can get to D.C. much quicker from Port Covington than, than from the Inner Harbor. And we're building high-performing 21st century buildings. That is a competitive advantage. So the storytelling will unfold. We'll do a major rebrand by the fall, um, hopefully announce some leases soon. And from there, we hope to build uh, an entire community of people who want to live, work, and play in Port Covington. Let's come back to New York, your your bread and butter, I guess, and, and, and the place where you really made your name. So you've got several multifamily projects under construction, so just let me go through them a little bit. 300 East 50th Street, 194 units, a multifamily building there, and then at 240 West 28th Street, you're building 480 apartments with 30% of them affordable and leasing set to start there next year. There's also 335 8th Avenue where the Affordable Housing Cooperative picked you guys to develop the building into a mixed income apartment and also that has a commercial space with a grocery, and those are all developed with 421A or Affordable New York, which is going to most likely lapse It's a big tax break that developers love. If it does lapse, how will that affect your approach going forward, do you think? Another great question. So it's um, it's not it's 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 an existential necessity to have 421A to build multifamily in New York. There is no multifamily business without a 421A program. Many people believe it's a windfall. It's 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 essential to make a project viable uh, economically for both capital and lenders. And so I believe, uh, first of all, as I said earlier, these three projects are all set. The footings are in. That's a huge uh, differentiator and a big advantage. We do not... Now, by the way, this didn't happen accidentally or overnight. This has been the toiling for the last eight months to make sure that those footings were in well before the deadline. Because you knew that this was coming out. Yes. Yeah. You know, back in the day, nobody ever questioned whether there'd be a 421A tax program. As you know, the last few cycles have put that in jeopardy, and there's a lack of appreciation and understanding on the political front how essential this program is. And it'll probably be tweaked, but the absence of any signal of what it looks like will have unquestionable impacts and and it'll be a chilling effect. So I would predict that anybody who's got footings in will build because we know that there is a housing emergency still in the city, that rents are back to pre-pandemic highs. And yet, at the same time, we will not have a program to avail ourselves so that we can build buildings that have affordable housing and market rate housing. And a great city provides housing at all levels, right? So we need affordable low-income housing, we need middle-income housing, and we need market rate housing. And for a developer that really wants to build that, it is unfortunate, it's a travesty to imagine that we will end up with a lapse in that program. And the dysfunction in government, the lack of an appreciation for what the benefits are, and again, this is math, so it's not mysterious. If anybody sat down and looked at the cost of construction, the cost of land, the impact of a full tax load on a, on a multifamily building and 30% affordability, it's it's obvious that this program is essential. So it continues to frustrate me. It makes me somewhat jaded about the New York City political environment. I think the governor gets it, but this is an example where the governor's work is um, to try to help the legislature see the, ne- the necessity of a program and then all the, the negotiating and horse trading that's going to go on for that program. So I'm going to sit back and wait for it. The nice thing is we have this pipeline, which we're going to fulfill. And hopefully somewhere along the line, the program will be reinstated. And when it is reinstated, 
I will always go back to multifamily. It's something that in the, the, the life cycle of the company, I want to do more of. We're really good at it. There are high barriers to entry. Um, a lot of the work we do on the three that you mentioned, um, two of the three are ground leases. And ground leases are often frowned upon by developers and lenders alike. We have unlocked the, the key to doing uh, viable, um, you know, economically advantageous ground lease deals on multifamily. And the reason why that's important is you have a lot of landowners in New York that are sitting on land that has value, but they don't want to sell it. They also don't know how to build on it. And it's the gift that keeps on giving if you build multifamily because you're pretty much assured that you will fill that building year over year. And if you're ending up with excess units, it's because you've gotten greedy. And all you need to do is recognize that your price is too high. You you, you reduce your price and you fill your buildings. I don't want to oversimplify it, but the fact of the matter is, is that there's reasons why the great dynasty families in New York have a quest or a mission to, to, to own, build and own multifamily housing because it is a, a, a coveted asset class in a city like New York and you can't trade it for anything better. So my future state is to have a, a, a robust portfolio of multifamily units and hold on to them. But at this stage, it doesn't sound like you're rushing to multifamily just at the moment beyond what you already have because of this issue with 421A. So maybe just, for example, like Vernon Boulevard, which I know is like a very, it's sort of in the future and there's nothing totally clear with that. But like, would you build multifamily there without this, this sort of tax break? No. Wouldn't build it and wouldn't even begin to design it and, and count on it because this program will change and the absence of clarity is um, is a chilling effect. Developers always say that it's essential, but then there's really unflattering analysis that comes out. Like, for example, um, control, the controller Brad Lander's office put out that, you know, of all the units built between 2017 and 2020 using that break, most, so like 60%, were set for rents that were affordable for families making 130% of AMI. So that means a family of three would have to earn like about 140000 to pay 3400 each month on a two bedroom, which, you know, it just doesn't sound that great to a voter. So when you, when something doesn't sound that great to a voter, politicians kind of are very public about how they don't like it. Agreed. And I don't know the 60% number. I haven't read his study, but I can only tell you that developers are conforming to a program. So I would ask Brad Lander, like, why did the program not respond to the needs of the city? Because all the development community is doing is availing itself of that program. So when the program went from 20 to 30, we dealt with it and we built 30% affordable. And if the AMIs have to change, tell us what they need to be. So I, I think it's, it, you're, I think the blame is being put on the wrong parties because there would not be the level of affordable housing in the city were it not for that program. And if the program is no longer responding to the needs of the city and there is an evaporating middle class and there is a need to create workforce housing, then by golly, give us a program and allow us to do that. Because all we want is certainty and predictability and a recognition of what it costs to do business in the city when you're building. And the fact is, it is among the most challenging places on the planet to build. The city is not very hospitable to construction, and construction costs are rising. Inflation is 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 crazy. And so I, I, I think that a lot of people didn't realize that most every luxury building in this city, going back since the beginning of time, right, was built with 20% low-income housing, and people didn't know that. And so there's been a lot revealed about the program, good and bad. And I'd say if we need to tweak this program to have it be more responsive to the needs of our city, then let's sit down and do that. 
At the start of the year, you said that you really liked how the governor and the mayor were, were, were talking about real estate. You said you weren't optimistic about um, about 421A, which <laughs> turns out you were right. Um, but how do you rate them now, now that we're kind of halfway through the year? I think we're still in this period of it's a honeymoon of sorts. And um, I think they're both doing their level best. Uh, it's not a job I could ever imagine wanting, I think. Um, the governor certainly hit the ground running, and I think she's um, she's been very impressive. And um, I think she's run um, a strong campaign, and and I hope that she is successful in in getting elected. Uh, I know Eric Adams, and I think the mayor is um, a lover of our city, and I I really particularly like that he's not afraid to make the calls, and he's willing to be progressive, he's willing to be moderate, and he's willing to be conservative, all in one sentence, if that's what it takes. And so I, I think he's his own thinking politician, and he is obviously all Brooklyn, and I have a soft spot for that. I just think he needs a little more runway because it's just a colossal task. And, and I'm going to say this is one of the most consequential terms for a New York City mayor ever. So I think you got to give him a little bit of time to get his sea legs. And um, the last thing I'll say on that is it's obviously never one person. It's all about his appointees and who steps into the various agencies and, and um, into City Hall. And I've been impressed by his ability to attract talent. And I think he's capable of empowering the people that have decided to come and work for him, like Andrew Kimball. Andrew Kimball is a giant coup for the city of New York. Why Andrew Kimball wants to go back into government is a separate discussion. But the Question fact for Andrew Kimball. <laughs> yes, exactly. But the fact that he's willing to serve New Yorkers with the kind of um, fresh thinking, bold thinking, and deep skill set that he has, um, I'm, I'm thrilled that he is um, the head of economic development. And so that's an example of kudos to, to Mayor Adams for being able to close someone like Andrew. You're building a new office building at 122 Varick in, in Hudson Square. Um, you have a ground lease there with Trinity. Uh, you've got the equity for the deal. You have an investor, which is unnamed, unless you want to name it now. <laughs> no? Okay. <laughs> um, so th- we know that there's a, a lot of interest in sort of new office buildings. And considering you've been involved in office buildings for so many iterations of the city, what would you say the future is for buildings where there's this flight to quality. What's the future for what's left behind by this flight to quality? I think it is the place of a greatest concern for, for folks in, in the office market. I think uh, it's clear to me that the buildings that are B and C buildings that are sick, unhealthy, lacking light and air um, are in trouble. Now, we're a city that's constrained by real estate, this is where public policy meets real estate. And I think that there are a number of opportunities that uh, could be invented, created to address the fact that there needs to be new construction. And if you take a little trip around the world, virtually or otherwise, you recognize that you know cities of the future, a global city, uh, we need to do a lot of work on our office stock. The average age of a New York City office building exceeds 70 years. That's a problem. And I do like to say that Hudson Yards was not successful because it was easy to get to. So what was it about Hudson Yards? It was that it was high-performing 21st century buildings that companies believed they could um, optimize their performance in. And so if we think about that, what should happen to 6th Avenue? So I'd like to see a program that was similar to the Midtown East rezoning where developers are incentivized 
to take buildings down, repurpose buildings, convert buildings to um, industries of need. So we know that life science is a budding, uh, fairly nascent business in New York City, uh, something that there's a lot of money lining up for, not a lot of places uh, where you could build these um, these uh, technological um, motherboards of, of life sciences and applied sciences. And so you could create tremendous floor plates if you incentivize developers to take down some of the older bu- building stock. We could certainly use a lot of those buildings for housing. Not every office building can be converted. Yeah, how does that even work with plumbing? You know, I often wonder that. Like one toilet per <laughs> floor? Like- you are adding a lot. But you could do – let's just say that you're doing the four – outside walls of a building, if the floor plate lent itself configuration-wise to a residential building, and some of the smaller buildings actually could, then um, you could, again, assuming that the economics were right and the tax programs and the underlying incentives were there, you could gut a building and you could add all of that infrastructure easily if the land pricing and the, um, the, the, the building itself were there. Or if you took it down and built a residential building in, in its place. So I think there's an opportunity here, and um, we have to recycle that office stock. We have to create something better and more becoming of a 21st century city. And this is why I go back to the idea that this can't happen without the public parties. So the city and the state really have to rally behind this. And um, you know, I come from a world where I started on the public side. This public-private partnership idea is just fundamentally important to reinventing our city post-COVID. And so I'm hopeful, but there has to be a lot of really big thinking and bold thinking. And then we talk about dysfunctional politics. There's no place for dysfunction when you're trying to reinvent, and you have to kind of figure that out. You're talking about saying you want to get developers and politicians in the same room. That immediately triggers you know, public concern. Oh, what's going on there? That's wrong. That shouldn't be happening. What do you? Has it always been like that? And, and you obviously want that narrative to change. How do you think that can happen, and what do you think developers should do? So this is where leadership matters, and I think the the politicians should um, should rally with the community, and the community should come together with the development community. I think, you know, grassroots, ground up, community based development is real, and I think that's the way it has to happen. And people can agree to disagree, but we have to be having a conversation. And so, if the politicians aren't just looking for um, a popular thing to say that somehow um, creates press but instead are actually interested in getting in a room and talking about how to move forward with the community's interest uh, in hand, I I just would say that it would be a different conversation. And I was in Queens uh, on the Long Island City stuff for um, well over a year and a half, and I had never seen developers come together. There were were, uh, four developers looking at the Long Island City waterfront, wanting to engage with the community and prepared to support change for uh, Queenswood, you know, the public housing NYCHA project that's the largest in the city of New York. And it was hard to get people to come together and have a conversation because of the optics and um, the the diverging views and the different council races and who is running. It just, it suddenly became not about the community. So somehow we have to come together and recognize that we're all in this for community development that that benefits um, the community itself. And I think there's a way to do that and come up with an economically viable construct. Uh, It's just getting harder and harder. You know, there's really more divisiveness today 
in this country and in this city than I've ever seen. And I'm just hoping that in the old pendulum where it swings, you know, maybe when when gridlock occurs and nothing's happening and the city is falling apart and people still want to be here and they love our city, that something will give because something has to give. When did you start to see that divisiveness really set in, do you think? So look, I was obviously, I spent 10 years of my life on Pacific Park, which was at Atlantic Yards, and the divisiveness was raging. And the narrative, um, the opposition's narrative, uh, was um, was was a hearty narrative that that w- that people believed, and then the people that were in supportive of the project believed their narrative. Six hundred and thirty-six public meetings later, I think we we probably had a better project. It was not an efficient way to do it, but I think that there were some breakthroughs around how the community gave its input. So there was an Atlantic Yards development corporation created so that the community could come together and make recommendations to the governor's office. There were um, concessions made by the developer to do certain things to address shortfalls in the community, whether it's open space, whether it's affordable housing or infrastructure improvements. So there were things that were done for the benefit of the community, but in some ways it was terribly divisive. And it was then having built Times Square Metro Tech, projects that had a lot of um, public-private partnership associated with it, it was a new day. And I think technology, the internet, the ability for people to understand, are there 100 people behind the opposition for this project or are there a million people? And I would tell you that we parsed a lot of the data on the opposition of that project and we did a lot of polling. And without fail, over 60% of New Yorkers, Brooklynites and New Yorkers were in favor of Barclay Center and Atlantic Yards. If you read the blogs, you wouldn't necessarily know was the opposition, it was as long as a piece of string. There's no way to do anything big and bold without expecting some friction. And the friction just has to create light, not fire. And I guess what I'm searching for is a way to create the light. And I'm not saying it's easy, but it's it's essential if we're going to have progress. So your business is still very young. Mag Partners is only, what, two and a bit years old. Correct. Where do you expect it's going to be in the next few years? You've touched on it a little bit, but what kinds of projects do you expect to be doing and and what kind of legacy do you want from it, considering you already have a pretty big legacy in the city, New York Times building, Barclays? As a developer, you are what you build, and having a small hand in creating some of the most important modern buildings in New York City's history is, is, is just a great honor. And I consider myself lucky. This is good timing. This is hard work for sure, but it's also being part of a meritocracy where it was always about the best man or woman for the job. But we have a lot of way to go um, for this to be a truly level playing field for, for women and for minorities. And now I think my work is as compelling to me as it's ever been, but now I'm in the driver's seat. I don't work for a public company. I don't have a board of directors. It's 100% MAG partners. And that's enormously empowering, a little scary, empowering in a way where I feel like I can chart a course where my legacy becomes, how did I make a dent in the world and what, what does that look like? And um, it's, it's really about my children and about wanting them to have hope and believe in possibilities. And if I'm able to reshape the world of development in a way that makes it more democratic, more diverse, more inclusive, and more beautiful, um, 
I'll be so proud. And I think that my work is, is, is underway, but it's not done yet. And, and you might say to me, well, when do, you, when do you know that it's done? And I can tell you that the team that I have, which is an amazing team, have a lot of staying power. So now I view my job as being chief talent officer, being in charge of creating a platform that can exist well beyond my, my time in it. And um, I'm going to set it up in a way where I've got at least two decades, two decades left in me. And I do love what I do. So it's really not work. And I want my children to be proud of the work that I did. I want them to be proud of, of the cities in which I worked. And I want my team to believe that we've created a landscape, a skyline, and places on the ground that may change people's life for the better. And so I think I'll know when I'm there, but I'm not there yet. I'm actually nowhere near where I want to be. You can call me ambitious, but I think that um, there is just a lot of work to do. And, and, and unfortunately, and I'll just be honest with you, Miriam, there's not a lot of women doing it. And I'd love for it to be some forgettable moment because there are so many women that don't, don't come from real estate dynasties that are actually standing up companies and uh, doing this work across the globe. It's a work that, that women are really good at by their very nature because it's a lot of um, synthesizing of disparate information, being organized and being collaborative. And women, particularly women who raise families, you know, you need to collaborate to survive. And you also, you know, you build teams so that you could be successful at home and at work. So the work of a developer is, is, is quite conducive to the mind of, of a woman. And there's nothing that should stop women from going into the field. And, you know, living by example and showing people that you can be a mother and a developer and that developers don't eat their young, and that we are actually people who care deeply about um, cities and about communities and about families. And so, um, again, I don't want to make it about there's only some small few of us doing it, but there aren't enough of us doing it to satisfy me. And now I spend much more time mentoring. I spend much more time believing that in the boards and the rooms and the C-suites that I can now be in, I can sort of I can fly that flag and I can carry that message more effectively than I could 20 years ago. So my work really has to change. And um, deal-making and finding pipeline is, um, is, is one of the most um, enjoyable activities of my profession. So the challenge for me is to um, cultivate a team that's capable of doing all that and then creating a perch from which I can give people opportunities and I can um, I can say what has to be said which is that the world is a very different place and um, all of us have a place in it and for those of us that people of color women should feel as if this is an industry where they can prosper not by compromising who they are and what they believe in but because of who they are and what they believe in Marianne thank you so much for doing this I really appreciate it well thank you for your time thanks for listening it's always a pleasure <laughs>